0: This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we are very excited to have another guest from outside neurosurgery. Um, However, this is someone who has had exposure to our field before. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Dr. Vinay Prasad a professor of oncology, epidemiology, and biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. We recently mentioned a a phenomenal grand rounds that he gave to the neurosurgery department there about a year ago when I was speaking with Dr. DiGiorgio about how to interpret medical literature within our specialty. And uh, the interpretation of medical literature and biomedical science is one of many hats that Dr. Prasad wears at UCSF, but
1: I'll let him introduce himself. Dr. Prasad, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, by way of introduction, I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm a professor here, as you said, in the Department of Epidemiology. I'm also a practicing hemonc doctor and I work here at San Francisco General Hospital with Dr. Giorgio. And I take care of people with uh, the complete range of hematologic and oncologic ailments. And so great to be here. And uh, thanks for having me on the show.
0: Of course, we are really excited to have you and speak about a number of things. Um, I'll say that Uh, It is always nice to have another public-facing physician on the show. You've got your own phenomenal podcast plenary session that we'll talk about a bit later, but um, there's so much I want to talk about with you. Let's try to do it one bite at a time. So thinking about the analysis of analysis and and considering biomedical science as a field, let's start within the context of neurosurgeons because, you know, we're... we're, uh, simple people and we can be self-centered at times. So let's start thinking about ourselves. Uh, In the talk that you gave at UCSF, you did a a great kind of a tour de force through some of the biggest and most controversial papers within our field. And we don't need to go and rehash all of that. I'll point our listeners to it and we'll put a link in the show notes. But in general, when you're approaching a scientific paper in the medical sciences, what's a, a, a broad scope general approach that you take as you start to read the paper, and then maybe we'll, we'll drill down into different specific studies. All
1: right. That sounds good. So I think whenever I, I guess the first question is, which paper do you even read? I mean, these days we have about 4 million papers indexed a year in PubMed. So it is impossible for anyone to read all of the papers. Even if you're a neurosurgeon whose only specialty is aneurysms, I doubt you can even read all the papers on aneurysms each year. So we all have to make choices about what to read. So in general, I prioritize reading higher quality evidence. So I like prospective studies. I like experimental studies. When possible, I like randomized studies. Observational studies have a role, but they should be taken with a grain of salt. And I'm mostly interested in studies about how to make people better off. So treatments and things like that. Um, Although there's a huge body of literature on risk factors and prognosis, and that requires sort of a different lens. So I guess for the neurosurgeons out there, they're probably interested in new technologies and new interventions that they can offer their patients. And the real question is, how confident are we that these things are better?
2: Yeah, Dr. Prasad, that's, those are such great points. And I think people often get myopic and don't realize how big the literature is. There's a great Freakonomics episode just this past month about uh, fraud in uh, scientific literature and can it ever be stopped. And, and it's the other side of the coin, right? In other words, how do you spend your time correctly or most efficiently to read the best studies? But there's another flip side, which is a lot of the, I don't want to just call it fraud, but like there's a lot of um, poorly conducted or misleading or unintentionally misleading studies. Uh, it's 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 very difficult to sort this out. Do you, do you have any source by which you filter things? You go by journals or you go by the authors? Or how do, you, how do you even figure that out? There's too much literature, as you said.
1: Yeah. So that's a great, great topic. So one is, I think if you look at retractions, you'll find that a paper's probability of being retracted is proportionate to the impact factor of the journal. In other words, New England Journal, Nature, Science, Cell, the premier journals actually are more likely to have papers retracted. So I don't think you can go by the journal. Now, of course, the caveat there is, they're more likely to be retracted probably in part because more people are even reading those papers. You know, A lot of journals, not even my mother would read if I published in there. So that's one of, that's, that's one of the things. The next thing is you're talking about fraud. I think fraud is the tip of the iceberg of problems in studies. I mean, fraud means that somebody Photoshopped the Western blot, somebody made up a spreadsheet of data. And fraud does happen. I think that Freakonomics episode talked about um, Francesca Gino and Dan Arelli, these behavioral scientists I think we saw the president of Stanford resigned recently over Western blots that appear to be Photoshopped or have image duplication. Fraud to me is the rarest thing in medicine, that somebody's actually fabricating the data. What's much more common is that people are stacking the deck. They got a thumb on the scale because they have no control arm, bad control arm, bias in the design, bias in the endpoints. That's much more common. And if you take the totality of things that make a study unreliable, you might conclude, as uh, some people have in the past, that even the majority of published literature is not true or not useful. And I think that's one of the sobering conclusions we have. So you know, what do I go by? I think the reality is I pick papers that I think are relevant to my practice, that are things that I like to do, pills, procedures, devices that I like to do. And then I take a deep dive and I really try to rigorously interpret those papers myself. And I think that's the only The only way to do it even if they're in the new england journal or uh you know the premier journal in the field i think one should always be critical about these papers
0: you know it's interesting that you began uh, this conversation talking about the deluge of papers that we deal with uh in in the modern era and it's that time of year during interview season where everyone's talking now about the arms race with publication numbers for people applying into residency not just in neurosurgery but in any competitive specialty And I I think we've talked on this podcast before, many people who pay attention to these things have talked about this phenomenon before, where first as we lost meaningful grades in medical school, and then we lost the uh, actual score to step one. It was only logical and very anticipated that publication number being a quantifiable number that one person can have higher than another person would be the next thing to become the competitive metric for applicants. So is it your sense, because I know part of the work of your lab is looking at medical literature and, and evaluating it, is it your sense that this explosion of papers that we've been seeing, um, I think it would be intuitive that uh, it, it's low-quality papers flooding the market, so to speak, but has it been your sense that the majority of these papers are well-conducted but about uninteresting or unimportant topics and just fluff, or are they stacking-the-deck kind of papers like you're discussing? Or do you think there's been any increase in out and out fraud as people feel more and more pressure to just publish
1: something? That's a great question. So I guess the first thing is I agree with your premise. Step one is pass fail. I was never a fan of the questions on step one. For instance, I don't think it's very useful for a doctor to know the, uh, the, the isoforms of RNA polymerase. You know, I don't think that's a great (laughs) question, but Whatever they whatever they were testing on, even if they were just testing on state capitals or testing on countries of the world, or you know, uh, it was a numerical score that told you something about how well people take standardized tests, how well they study. That's gone away. All right, so we don't have that to go by. It's pass fail now. The next thing that gone away is meaningful grades, as you say. And the reality is, neurosurgery is a competitive field, and there's always going to be a competition. And the more you take away ways we can evaluate applicants, they're just going to create a new competition. The new competition is. Churning out low credibility abstracts or publications. Now, how many of these are fraud? I would be surprised if, the, if, if, if anything but a tiny minority is fraudulent. Like, I don't think the types of people who go into neurosurgery are the types of people who want to commit fraud. So I would be surprised if that were the case. But I'm confident that the majority of them are not true or not useful. I mean, these are retrospective chart reviews at a single center, maybe even a fragment of that. You're not even getting complete case ascertainment. Sometimes these are studies where they're looking for risk factors um, in very small data sets. Uh, they can be a problem called overfitting, where those risk factors tell you something in your data set, but they're actually not. A, cannot be scaled up to other data sets. Um, there are problems where they have incomplete data. There's, prob- there's, a, there's a sea of meta-analyses where they're just trying to, you know, put things together. The problem is if you, I like to say meta-analysis is like a juicer. It only tastes as good as what you put in the juicer. And if you put <laughs> rotten garbage in that juicer, it's going to taste like crap. And that's what you see. Yeah. To me, it's it's tragic because at the end of the day, there are great, there are some neurosurgeons who are great researchers. Don't get me wrong. But most neurosurgeons, what we want them to be for, first and foremost is a great neurosurgeon. And to me, being able to open up Stata and do some retrospective chart review, that's not the best predictor of a good neurosurgeon. I want somebody who's calm under pressure. I want somebody who's willing to work hard and stay late. I want somebody who's willing to go the extra mile. I want somebody who has good hand eye coordination. You know, that's what I want from my neurosurgeons. And you probably guys know even better than me what you want from your neurosurgeons. We don't get that. We are, instead, we're judging them based on these abstracts. And that to me is quite problematic. And so I think something's got to give. I think that. You know, I've talked to colleagues in dermatology, they're getting thousands and thousands of applications for SPOT, um, and they have no benchmarks to judge people based on. Um, I think something's got to give, and we're going to need to have come up with some other ways to assess the applicants going into the field.
2: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Dr. Prasad, the, that proliferation of ease of application. They talk about this a lot now that there's, it's easier to match. It's like Tinder, right? <laughs> so, right. Everybody's got a ton of applications and a ton of applicants, and it's just it's just more white noise in a a lot of senses because there's you know everybody's got can only do one job and every job can only be filled by one person so let's go to those metrics that people love to just throw out there right, maybe you can help our audience better understand because you do have a deep understanding of this what is an H index? What is an I index? What's a Google Scholar measure? These are ways that people are using a fast, dirty. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about this now. So tell us what your real opinion is about these types of measures and what they really mean.
1: That's a great question. So what I would say to that is we could start H index. It's the so-called Hirsch index. And it is the largest number H such that you have H papers with at least H many citations. So in other words, let me let me let me get to little, uh, actually let me give a little bit of background. The first thing people said is if you want to if you want to judge a researcher, maybe you should judge them by the total number of papers they've published. But if you use that metric, of course, somebody who keeps writing you know really low quality papers is going to publish a lot of papers, but it doesn't capture how influential or how important those papers are. So then somebody comes along and says, let's look at total citations. You know, whoever has more citations, that's the better researcher, whose work is more influential. And that can be useful, but the problem with that metric is that you can imagine there's a researcher who's just on 99 low-quality papers, but the 100th paper they're on is like the neurosurgical guidelines for stroke, and they're a co-author, middle author. And that paper has got 50,000 citations because everyone who's doing stroke is citing that paper. And so then the problem is that, well, okay, total citations is, may not be great because one or two papers where you're just sort of a middle author, didn't do anything, could drive that whole number up through the roof. So then comes along the Hirsch index and that Hirsch index is the biggest number H. So they have H many papers with at least H many citations. And what it means is if you got 10 papers and the first five papers are cited six times or more, but the bottom five papers are only cited once your large, your H index will be five. You have f- at least five papers with five or more citations. And it's both a metric of the number of papers you have and the number of papers with a certain amount of citations. So it kind of captures both things. Now, What's a good h index? I think professors at Johns Hopkins, for instance, in medicine, typically have h index around twenty. I think like really good scholars, h index is fifty. Hundred is great. Two hundred is great. I mean, this is what people say. But one of the problems is if you're evaluating somebody who's coming as an applicant, their h index is going to be low no matter what because the biggest driver of citations is just being having been around a while. The longer your paper is out there on the in the in the ecosystem, it can be cited more. So it's very difficult to take somebody who published all their papers two years ago and look at their H-index because it's still so early. It's such an early look. So it's probably a better metric for career um, impact. Um, I-index, this is called the I-10 index I think you're talking about. It's basically the number of papers you have with at least 10 citations. That's also trying to get at this metric of both quantity and quality. Um, There is the Kardashian index index where you take a Hirsch Index and you take how many Twitter followers they have and you try to find people who have far more Twitter followers disproportionate to their academic record. You know, that's the Kardashian Index. Um, To me, all of these things are imperfect. The better way to kind of look at the scholarship, particularly in trainees, is to go through the list of papers, um, pick out a few, maybe pick out one and read it. And then when you interview them, ask them about that one paper. And you will quickly learn if they actually – had anything to do with the one paper, because some people can talk about their research and some people have no clue what happened. And I think that that might be a test of how involved they were in the project.
0: You know, that's a very interesting point because it it kind of gets back to the heart of what, what started this little conversational foray, which is quantifying people uh, metrics for the applicants. And as you say, sometimes maybe a single quantified number is not the best way to evaluate someone. Maybe taking the time to read a paper and actually you know, talk to the person is the best way to understand a person. And similarly, you know, we face this problem in neurosurgery where a lot of the questions we want to evaluate aren't easily answered with a study that you could either design or uh, recruit a good powered sample for, or get approval by an irb m- much less even want to conduct it yourself because of some of the things you'd have to randomize people to or away from so um, when, when you think about designing a study how do you approach because a- as you say you work in the field of oncology where, where people are facing death and and you may want to randomize them toward a highly toxic new chemotherapeutic agent or they might be randomized to a placebo arm where you know they're not getting something that could potentially save them. So how do you approach that problem of designing a study to answer a question that you'd really like the answer to, but there may not be a feasible or moral way to ask the question?
1: Yeah, I guess my point of view is generally, I think studies are much more doable than I think what many of my colleagues may think. I think that often there is an ethical Prerequisite to do it, I'll give you a couple. I'll give you one example that I think is salient. I mean, ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, that's kind of a big deal. You've got complete hemodynamic and oxygenation collapse, and we don't use ECMO that often. You know, we use we use ECMO in severely ill patients. Just in the last couple of years, we've had two randomized control trials of ECMO um, after uh, 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 after coding uh, was one and. Basically, both of the studies are pretty negative that ECMO did not improve outcomes. And notably, 40% of people in these studies died in both arms. So what's my point here? My point here is that some people would have said it's unethical to randomize people to ECMO or no ECMO because, you know, if you're on death's door, you got to do something. But these studies show that even with a high death rate, you can still randomize people to the procedure or not. And you might find paradoxically that it even it doesn't help. In cardiology, they've got some trials of putting a balloon pump in people with uh, cardiogenic shock. Those were negative. IABP shock. Um, Now let's. In oncology, we have we've long been comfortable with randomizing people who are terminally ill to a new treatment or no treatment. In the field of neurosurgery, I do think one of the challenges is, and one of the things that makes many trials have very poor applicability, is that there are many patients who doctors see that they're very confident. They need a procedure or they don't need a procedure, and those patients typically aren't randomized. The ones that are randomized are the ones the doctors just really feel like, eh, you know, they could do it or not do it. I'm not really sure about it. This is particularly true in aneurysms. And in that case, the randomized trial is not telling you about everybody. It's telling you about the people who you <coughs> feel comfortable randomizing. Mm.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting the, you know, it's the, the modern studies are becoming quite complicated and the details really matter. Um, you know, going back to this topic of, of what it means to be doing good quality research, you know, what's the old saying that like, if you're, uh, if you're starting out, you read the abstracts, if you're getting a little more advanced, you know, you're reading, you know, the conclusions and then beyond that is the methods. And if you're really senior, you just read the references to see if they referenced, right. Something like that. (laughs) And, you know, one of the things that really strikes me when you're starting, but then, it doesn't hit you is that the methods section really matters. Right. And when you read the methods, you really uh, assuming that they're reported accurately, you really get a feel of the seriousness of the study. Um, You know, you're in the Bay Area, right? You're close to Stanford and I I went to Stanford for college and medical school. I tell people I bleed cardinal red and, and the recent happenings with uh, Mark Tessier Levine and all this stuff. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, we're hearing about this now, of course, with the Harvard president. It's a slightly different tack. But this has become a very, very hot topic in its various facets. It's, I know it's a lot of different things. We're talking about a lot of different things. Um, and it's not just about fraud. It's not just about um, dishonesty. That's just the simplest glance. But it's about how people see your work product, maybe. Yeah. And so because you're an expert in this, tell me your thoughts on this because – Mark Tessier-Levine was a very serious neuroscientist, right? It's quite a big deal what happened with him.
1: Yeah, I guess I can do them in reverse order. So Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, you know, she has 11 publications and a dissertation, and over 50% had just clear-cut plagiarism. She's pretty much lifting verbatim sentences from other publications. Um, I think that's and, and, a, uh, can I have you there? What's, and, and this is being validated by, by computer algorithms,
2: right? They actually check word for word. It, it's, it's not hard to do now, right?
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm not exactly sure if it was detected by AI methods, but yes, you can apply those software. But the thing is, you know, you can just look at the passages and you can see she's plagiarized. She even plagiarized the acknowledgements in one of her pieces. She's plagiarized throughout her thesis. So, I mean, in her case, I think it's clear cut that, what am I to think? The president of Harvard has a CV with 50% plagiarism. I mean, it's ridiculous. Any student in Harvard would be expelled with that CV. And so I think this just that plagiarism alone is disqualifying and so I'm glad she did resign. I thought that was the honorable thing to do. I'm surprised she was even president in the first place with a CV like that. And then some people say, well, you know, there's it's politically motivated and all this timing is bad. Sure, I I'm I'm aware of that, you know, If you're going to be the president of harvard you're going to have enemies and they're going to come for you whenever um but the problem is people will look in your closet you shouldn't actually have skeletons in there and she did so that you know that's the problem um also i think you know the president of harvard we could do a little bit better than than that than that and i think she also can't deny that she did it because she's like in some cases the only author of the paper let's do mark levine uh he's the president of stanford he had a laboratory Supposedly, the culture was he wants a lot of results fast, and some people in his laboratory might have uh, Photoshopped images to get results fast, and he recently retracted a paper in Nature. In this case, he can plausibly say, look, I'm not the one doing the Photoshopping, but what he can't say – but the mistake is you know, he, he didn't supervise his lab closely, and he probably created a culture where people felt like that if you weren't generating results all the time, you know, he's going to maybe throw you out, or you're not going to have a career – and so it inc- it created this sort of perverse incentive for people to do that. You know, I also think it probably was right that he stepped down. Um, one thing to point out is that why do we find so much fraud in Western blots? It's because Western blots are one of the few things people actually publish the primary study data. If some people publish the actual epic chart data for their underlying case series in neurosurgery, you might find a lot more fraud or error because- mm-hmm the reality of the chart might be different than what they're publishing. So, I mean, it's only because you get to see it in Western blots that you can see that they're doing something. Now, the thing about the methods. I think the methods are the most important part of any paper. Um, Maybe I'll just give you one example. There are many, many studies right now where they want to see what is long COVID doing. You know, if you've got COVID and recover from COVID, um, you know, uh, is your body damaged? Is Is your brain Neurons degenerating. Does it cause Parkinson's? I read, I read it's causing Parkinson's. I read it. It's attacking the heart. It's doing everything. It's amazing. I don't know how this virus, virus is doing everything. If you look at the methods for most of these papers, particularly the ones that come from the Washington University group, here's what they do. They say, we took everybody in the VA system with a COVID positive test, and we compare them against people in the VA system who didn't have the COVID positive test. Now, you can imagine most people I know have had COVID many people have had COVID, they never even tested. Many people I know had COVID, they'd used a home test. And then once you get the answer, you throw away the home test. Some people go to a minute clinic. And only a very few people go to the hospital to get your COVID-19 test. That group of people might be different than all of the people who get COVID. So if you look at veterans who have a positive COVID-19 test in the Veterans Administration, That might be a group of people very different than the average person who gets COVID, right? They're probably extremely sick and vulnerable and frail. And so probably most of those papers have absolutely no applicability to someone like me who had a sore throat for three days and then I felt better, you know? Um, So I think that's a problem with the methods. People say, people just read, they compare people with COVID to without COVID. They're not looking at the detail. Well, what does it mean to have COVID? Now, the gold standard would be seroprevalence assay where you actually took thousands of people and you drew their blood. And you took anybody who had had COVID, whether they knew it or not, and then tried to compare things. So that that's actually, I don't think much of that has been done with the long COVID literature. So, you know, my point here is just, you know, uh, methods matter a great deal. And being able to imagine in your mind what the researchers are doing often can can give you a clue as to what the limitations are.
0: You know, this dovetails very nicely with the really I guess the other half of the topic I wanted to discuss with you Dr. Yeah, is disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.